Music to Code By is taking the developer world by storm. Now there are six extra tracks available online in addition to the original three. That's nine Pomodoros of pure productivity just waiting for you. Check them out at mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1236, with guest Blake Helms. Recorded Friday, December 11th, 2015. Hey, guess what? It's .NET Rocks again. This is awesome. Carl Franklin. And it's Richard Campbell. And uh, here we are again. I'm on the, for those who don't know, I'm on the East Coast of North America, the continent, and Richard right. is on the West Coast, but we live in different countries. We do, but not yeah. by much. Not by much. You're, you can drive north not very far and you hit the border. I could drive south even less and I hit the border. Yeah. Yep. And for those who have never gone across the border, if it was Americans anyway, it's easy getting to Canada, not so easy coming back. <laughs> You know what? They can't refuse you. You're an American. Like, all they're doing is harassing you, they're really. They're just harassing you. Yeah. It's like, you know what? Okay, send me back to Canada. Really? Is that what yeah. you're going to do? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Oh, well. Someday, we'll be as polite as you guys. Uh, I don't think that's true, but all right. All right. Well, anyway. I appreciate the thought. How's yeah. that? Good. Good. Uh got some better no framework for you today, so roll the music. <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, you know, I, I can't remember what show it was because we do so many of these damn things, but I was complaining about the, the sort of lack of good UI at the uh, Amazon AWS or S3. So an alert reader sent me this S3 Explorer. So if you go to tinyurl.com slash S3 Explorer, this is the Cloudberry Explorer. It's an explorer for Amazon S3, and it's freeware. It's wow. a Windows client that basically lets you browse Amazon S3. Well, didn't you basically have to build your own back in the day? Well, I never really built my own, but I did, you know, wrap, I, I did make a little library for, you know, moving things to S3. Right. But it was never integrated with Windows Explorer. No, this is nice, though. Yeah, it's pretty nice. So if you have That's a lot really of cool. files to manage, and, you know, who would do that? <laughs> <laughs> When we moved, I remember, were we in New Zealand or New Australia? Zealand when you or moved Australia. all those files. That's right. All of .NET Rocks content up to S3 back yeah. in the day. That was a busy time. So it, it just goes to show you what a crazy world it is that. No kidding. We have, uh, you know, data, moving data from a, from a data center to Amazon from Australia. Yep. With a command line. Presumably not through Australia, as I recall. You managed to avoid doing that because that's yeah. a long way. Yeah, I think I remoted in to, uh, to our machines and ran them from there, but yep. it was fun. There you go. No, Larry, love, love it. Cloudberry. Who's talking to us, Richard? Such a good name, too. Cloudberry. Yeah. 
So I grabbed a comment off of show 1215, the one we did uh, with Sean McBreen when we were down at the MVP Summit talking about Visual Studio Code. And this comment actually comes off of Facebook. This is from John MacArthur, who says, okay, just install it, and wow, it's superb. I live in Visual Studio, but I always have a second editor, currently Sublime Text, installed for quick editing. It recognizes and color codes C-sharp, JavaScript, HTML, XML, web config files, and so on. It has snippets. This is my new favorite tool. And I just love that operating mode. Have you, you, you have studio open to manage your project, but you just want to edit that file. Yeah. So in you go into code to get that done. Yeah. Cool, huh? Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So I just wanted you to know that. John, thank you so much for your comment on Facebook. That's a comment I read off of Facebook and a .NET rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET rocks.com or via any of the social medias, Facebook, Google plus, we post every show there. And if you comment there, we read it on the show. We'll send you a mug. And we also tweet. You can reach us by Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send them up. Before I introduce Blake, uh, we got to talk about the ScottNet rocks tour. It's such a good name, too. Yeah. Go to tinyurl.com slash scottnetrocks. I'm talking, of course, about the .NET Rocks Scottish Tour in 2016. Richard and I are going to be in uh, Glasgow, Edinburgh, and Aberdeen, the 18th of January, the 19th of January, and the 21st. And uh, then we're heading on to Spay Country to uh, check out those distilleries out there. Any particulars you want to see, buddy? Aberlour. Yeah. I want to see that whole town. <laughs> That whole region. Yeah. Well, it's, well, it's, that's all spay, right? You'll, yeah. you'll have a great time up there. I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting up to the Dalmar, which is a little even further north. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, we're going to have a great time. So we're going to do three shows, as I said, Glasgow, Edinburgh, and Aberdeen. And you can sign up if you happen to be in Scotland in January at tinyurl.com slash scottnetrocks. And that brings us to Blake. Blake Helms is a team lead and senior .NET developer for EBSCO Industries, a global company with businesses in a range of industries, including information services, publishing and digital media, outdoor products, real estate, manufacturing and distribution, and business services headquartered in Birmingham, Alabama. There he is responsible for several core business applications and has been a driver for software craftsmanship and creating a culture that promotes mentorship and continuous improvement. Blake is incredibly passionate about technology in all areas, from writing code for work to audio and video production for his church to automating his home. Welcome, Blake. Thanks. I'm glad <laughs> to be here. Yeah, glad to have you. I appreciate the uh, half developer, half audiovisual guy. That's me. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Which half is that? And the third half is the musician, I think. Yeah. That's the one area I don't have. Well, you know, I don't know. I, I, I Sometimes I think I should give up some of these things just to simplify my life. Oh, yeah. My uh, coworkers and friends always give me a hard time about all of my various hobbies. I have about three full-time jobs, it seems like. Yeah. Absolutely. Anything worth doing is worth doing excessively, right? Oh, exactly. So we haven't talked about Windows workflow since like 1847, <laughs> back when it was originally conceived and then quickly discarded. I shouldn't say that. Um, people have been using it ever since. But, you know, it just goes to show you that it's one of those technologies that came around and maybe some people used it and that was it. And maybe some people didn't and moved on to other things. What is the state of Windows workflow these days? 
Well, I've got to say, you know, a lot of people tried out Windows Workflow when it originally came out uh, in .NET 3.0. And while I don't want to diminish uh, anything that the, the team at Microsoft did, uh, it was a huge step forward, but it was kind of limited. The designer wasn't very good. There mm. were a lot of performance issues. Yeah. Um, and in Workflow 4, they basically threw everything out and did a complete rewrite. And since then, with uh, four five, they they just made it a whole lot better. And now it has become uh, one of our favorite tools in our tool belt for building applications around complex business processes. What were some of the problems that they had to fix or that have been addressed recently? Well, you know, the original designer um, was very hard to use. Um, they've since changed it to a XAML based designer. Oh, that's good. Um, so it makes it a lot easier to uh, go in and make uh, manual modifications. And because it's in XAML, you can do a lot of other cool things. Like my team has taken ours and we've overridden some of the workflow styles to color code our activities so that you can quickly look at our workflows and see exactly what uh, areas different work uh, code activities are touching on the site. Was there Was there also some kind of brick walls. I remember people running into these brick walls with workflow. Maybe they were conceptual or maybe they were tool based, but I, I can't remember. It's been so long ago. Well, I got to say, you know, we, we actually took a couple of shots before workflow really stuck with us. Uh, the first time we ever looked at it was back in the workflow three days. Uh, we evaluated it for use in an application that had some complex cart rules. And at the time, we didn't think it really provided a lot of value. Mm. And we just didn't, didn't think that we needed that overhead. So we decided to, that we knew better and we'd write our own rules based dictionary. Mm. And a short time later, we realized that was a terrible idea. Yeah. And just saying, it was, that's a path to hell right there. Yeah. It, it became bloated and complex and no one really understood it. No one wanted to work on it. So the next big project we took on was, uh, our order processing system. So, you know, we're, we're rewriting basically 30 years worth of business rules, uh, into a modern .NET implementation. So we decided, you know, this is a perfect fit for a workflow. So we looked at it again and we still kind of thought, you know, it seems a little overcomplicated and we didn't know if it would really provide a whole lot of value, but we decided, well, what we did the last time didn't work. So we're not going to do the same thing again. So let's try it. So we tried it and early on, um, although now I'm a huge vocal proponent of workflow, I was yelling that we needed to get rid of it. Hmm. Um, it was just, it, it was a very different concept. It was just something that took me uh, a long time to get my head around because what we were trying to do is basically write code as usual, but with workflow. And so we were fighting those workflow concepts and there was all of a sudden we kind of had an epiphany. It was about the time that we really started making a huge effort into testing and test driven development. And so we started trying to write tests against this and we just kept hitting brick walls, mm. but it wasn't the workflow that was causing the brick walls. It was how we utilized it. Oh, interesting. So, so we took a step back and we started reevaluating how we wanted to uh, build these workflows. Um, and so we started determining that there were several levels of testability that workflow basically gave us right out of the box that if we would just look at it and utilize it would make our lives a lot easier. So you start with a code activity, which is the smallest component of a workflow. Mm -hmm. And so we decided we wanted to write unit tests around that, which the, the code activity kind of forced us into make this activity do one thing and one thing only. 
Because before mm. we were taking code activities and just putting all our logic in a single code activities. So you would end up with a workflow with like three activities on the page that executed 10,000 lines of code. And Yikes. that's a terrible thing to do. Right. Um, the other nice thing with, with code activities is because they pass data through input arguments and output arguments, you can mock the data going in and verify the data going out. So it makes it really easy to decouple from your dependencies. On top of that, Workflow includes its own service locator pattern called Workflow Extensions, mm -hmm. and we found it to be extremely easy to implement and very, very efficient. Very cool. You know, the thing that occurs to me when I think, and I'm, I'm not a Workflow guy, so I don't know, but it just seems like um, Workflow really works well when you're, you have a sort of monolithic application that's sort of all in one place, but does it handle the sort of asynchronous operations that, you know, a, a sort of modern distributed system can handle? It seems like, why would you have the workflow in one place when you have lots and lots of disparate systems talking to each other? Well, and that, that's a very good point. And in some cases, uh, workflow is just simply not going to make sense for, for the application. Uh, you know, I'm not here to say that it's always going to work. Okay. But what we found is we utilize workflows in uh, different services. So we may have three or four services that are all running on workflow that are being called by another workflow service. Mm -hmm. But the benefit is, even though we have this separation, the workflows make it very easy to understand what is going on in each one of those services. I see. So within a, you have this, you know, distributed microservices framework, whatever. In any given service, you use a workflow to handle what that service does. Correct. Yeah. And we'll even go a step forward where uh, we have one application that's fairly monolithic, but we'll break up each a group of activities that might be related. So mm. in our order processing example, all of our taxation activities are in one workflow. So we, the benefit here is we now have input arguments on the workflow so we can write integration tests around just that one component, mm. which allows us to test it way faster than trying to run an order all the way through the system. And it gives us a nice grouping so that we can easily debug and troubleshoot problems. Yeah, and it sounds like you're basically using a tool that's helping you enforce some good granularity on your code. That's exactly right. Now, I mean, it does also feel like you have to make a commitment here, right? Like, what what got you down the workflow fast in the first place? Because there is an argument to be said that all coding is workflow, essentially. And so, you know, why add a framework around it? Well, you know, we started really looking at it, and it kind of hit us while we were in a lot of these meetings. Um one of the first things you notice about workflow is it's visual and humans are naturally visual communicators. And it's a lot of times easier to describe complex ideas through visual imagery. So when we were trying to determine how we were going to build this order processing system, we were constantly going to the whiteboard and drawing it out with boxes and lines. Mm. And we determined that the whiteboard was basically the Rosetta stone of developers and business people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> developers yeah. don't necessarily understand the business vocabulary mm. and business people don't always understand the code. So then we started really looking at workflow and what we determined is, hey, we're, we can actually 
put our code into a framework that looks like what we're drawing on the whiteboard, mm. which that cuts down the feedback time when we're going to the business, because now we can actually pull up a workflow and say, this is exactly what our code is doing. Not a secondhand abstract representation, but this is what we are actually executing. So we can find problems earlier on in the process. We're enforcing that uh, decoupling uh, better in the development process, and it's it's easier to explain some of these really complex ideas. Now, that, that's really interesting angle on it, because usually when I've talked to people who want to do uh, use workflow engines, they're talking about being able to have non-devs mo- modify the workflow. Is that something that ever happens in your world? <laughs> so it's funny you bring that up, because I think that was originally how workflow was really pitched. Right. And while, while I think it's a valid use case, um, I've always, the enterprises I've dealt with, that's just really not a realistic uh, idea. I, I tend to agree. We're, we're talking about with our order processing system where things have to be done in a very particular order, and we want to put tests around that so that if that order changes, we know about it because that could cause catastrophic failure at the end. Um, so we see it as more of a, a bridge between our developers and our business people and being able to get everyone talking on the same language and easily describe what this complex process is rather than just handing off to business people to build on their own. Yeah, no, I, I totally dig that. That this visual element of you being able to show a workflow to the non-dev rather than try and walk them through a series of method calls, like that's a heck of a lot more coherent for them. I guess more coherent for you too. Right. Uh, it's a whole lot easier to to walk through these workflows than try to stare at a bunch of nifted nested if set tests. Mm, yeah, <laughs> a nice big case statement. Oh yeah. Well, that's, uh, we replaced some code not too long ago that, that had, uh, I think 20 different case statements and we were trying to trace through it. And, and I think one of the, the things that has, um, been a, uh, acknowledgement to me that we've made a right decision is we've brought in new developers. We're able to onboard them extremely quickly and every single one of them, one of the first things they say is, I can't believe how easy this makes this complicated business process. Yeah. yeah. And that really helps moving forward, doesn't it? You know, if one developer leaves, another one comes in, take a look at the workflow. Ah, I see where the problem is. Boing. Does the workflow designer give you sort of feedback when there are problems with any of the pieces of code that are in the, in the system? It does. So when you're actually building the application, you will get, you know, warnings and errors if you've forgotten to wire something up correctly. Mm. Um, you can also set breakpoints on the code activities in the workflow and step through it and see your code activities actually become highlighted as mm. you're stepping through. So this makes it really easy to try to follow and figure out, okay, which logic branch did this code just follow? This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Stackify. Our dev-centric friends at Stackify have been awarded PC Magazine's Editor's Choice for Application Performance Management, stating the depth of application information provided by Stackify totally outshined the other products in this category. Because Stackify so successfully integrates errors, logs, and metrics into a core APM Plus tool, it's a must-have for .NET developers which is why PC Magazine's Paul Farrell calls it one of the best infrastructure management services of 2015. Try Stackify now for free, and they'll ship you their coveted Developers Against Humanity card game. Just activate your account. Use the link bit.ly slash netrocks to build better apps faster and get your free game. 
Okay. So, so uh, the business people can be looking at the workflow while you guys are implementing it. In other words, can they be changing it as well? We, we really, uh, wouldn't probably let the business people make changes to it. Uh, we're normally looped in on that. Or they use it but as monitoring, it, right? Uh, they can. We haven't really used it like that. We, we will have meetings where we'll bring up a workflow and show them, here's how we're building this. Um, they're, they're not, they're rarely going in and looking at it on their own. But one of the things that you can use it for when you're starting off a project is kind of your your starting whiteboard where you spin up a new workflow and you just start dragging placeholder code activities into the logic flow that that everybody wants. And then your developers can go in later and fill in the actual code in the individual activities. Yeah. That's pretty cool. And so the before any of that code is active, you can sort of test the process, right? Is that one of the benefits of using workflow? Exactly. So it makes it uh, to real easy to test there. And it also makes it easy for if we want to completely redo a process. So kind of going back to my taxation example, if we decided we wanted to change how our taxation workflow goes, we could put a feature flag in and have both workflows and then decide which one we want to go down. And because we're keeping these nice logical groupings and we're kind of enforcing these practices of, of, uh, single responsibility, it makes it extremely easy to rip out large chunks of the system and plug in new uh, updated versions. Yeah, that it seems like an order system is the perfect, uh, you know, thing for this or any sort of, you know, dare I say, government software, you know, any sort of thing where you have to take a lot of rules and implement them. You're, uh, yeah, this is going to work really well for you. Right. And, you know, we've seen, you know, as as a large enterprise, we have a lot of really complex business processes. And, uh, you know, for a long time, we'll have one, two, maybe three people who understand how any of these individual processes work. So anything we can do to try to make this more transparent to the business and to our development staff is a huge win for us. Because now we're not uh, you know, sitting on the edge of, uh, well, if this person were to leave, then he can take take the business with him. Well, I think that's just sort of a byproduct of this kind of documentation engine too, right? It's just you have so much more visibility in each piece of those codes. Although, I got to think individual work items still can be complicated enough that if nobody else has looked at that, it's too scary to go into. Sure. And and that's one of the things that, you know, um, you know, workflow is not going to be a magic bullet. You can still write really bad code in workflow. <laughs> <laughs> it's your uh, foot. Exactly. I, w- I would love it if there was a, you know, a checkbox that's, uh, you know, eliminate bad code. Nice. But, um, Big red button. Exactly. But so one of the things that, you know, with my team, uh, which I have a, just a fantastic team of developers in QA and we're, um, you know, we've had a lot of, uh, work trying to, you know, adjust our culture into doing, you know, better code reviews and, and looking at things like this. And we're, we're definitely cognizant that, um, when we start seeing a code activity, if it starts getting more than, you know, 50, 60 lines long, something's wrong. We, we should be trying to break that up because that more than likely means you're doing more than one thing in there. You're, you're taking multiple logic paths and that's right. what we don't want in a, in a single code activity. Cause the workflow does the pathing for you. Exactly. So if we decide pretty much where you would have put a case statement, you should be using a uh, a workflow uh, conditional activity like a case um, or switch activity. Um, that way you can visually represent that 
this uh, this order or this you know business object is taking one path versus another and make it really apparent that it's doing this. And it also shows you where you might have some gaps. Uh, workflow has been really great for us because we were working on a a new service uh, pretty recently where we realized that no one had ever thought of what happens when um, you know a request comes in that doesn't meet any of these other criteria. Right. But now workflow makes it very easy to see that we have an activity that doesn't ever complete. Yeah, yeah, and it would have been a hole otherwise. And it suddenly hit me now when you talk it this way. It's like so what workflow is really doing is separating the work from the flow. Hmm. Exactly. That's I think really that's a great way of describing it. Yeah, because the, the you've now got sort of a descriptive language or a visual language around the flow rules so that e- what these individual items then are specific granular bits of work. Exactly. And I think that's the hardest thing when you're getting started with workflow, because as developers who've been writing C-sharp for the last 10 years, we do both in our C-sharp code. So trying to separate those out and think of them as two different things is is probably the hardest thing to get your head wrapped around. And that's why we found that utilizing uh, the testability and using tests to help show us where we have some code smell that we're doing something wrong uh, has really pushed us in the right direction. And once we really adopted the workflow mindset and embraced it, it has made our lives way easier. Is there a web a solution for the workflow designer. I, I see that a lot, you know, people asking for it and doing crazy things like trying to force XAML in the browser and everything, but it doesn't seem like it, the time has come for that. Well, um, SharePoint uh, does utilize Windows Workflow Foundation and has um, a designer in it, uh, but unfortunately you would then have to use SharePoint. Um, yeah. They're also... <laughs> They wah, also, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> yeah, I had to, I, I had, had to get problem. that one in. <laughs> I solved uh, it with SharePoint. Now I have two problems. Two problems. Um, but one of the other features that, that Workflow 4 gave us is the ability to rehost the designer. So hmm. not really, uh, on the web, but if you're building a custom business application where you wanted to give your users the ability to take your pre-built components and model them into workflows, you can build those into your own applications and not require everyone to have Visual Studio, uh, in order to do that. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. But, but it, yeah, I'm also hearing over and over again, it's like you have to buy in to the way workflow works to really get the benefits from it. Exactly. Um, you know, it's just, it's a very different way of thinking and, um, you just, you kind of have to open yourself up to it. And that's why when we initially started, I was just dead set against it because, sure. you know, we were, we're moving my cheese and, uh, mm-hmm. I, I wanted it back. Um, but after we had that epiphany and started doing things the right way, we realized how much easier our job was and how, how many fewer defects we were getting because we were getting things right the first time since now we had a common language that we could speak with QA, development, business, and we could easily spot problems long before they made them to production. Well, I like this, you know, separation of work and flow thing that it was you, you, you deal with the flow problems in advance because you have all that visualization to make sure you've got the granular bits of work that matter. And that, you know, sort of leads you down the right path. And, and you said this right off the top, but I'm really rattling on this. It's like each of those work units now are very testable because you've you've sort of defined what's going to come in and out of it as part of the flow piece of this. Exactly. And I think 
to me, while most people will see visual as the number one benefit of workflow, I, I see it as testability because mm. each one of those components is, is very modular. And by its very design, we're using input and output arguments and being set up so that no activity knows about another activity, no workflow knows about another workflow. It puts you in a spot early on where you're able to write really good, solid testable code. Now, you still have to write those tests and you still have to be bought in to testability being important. And that's right. why I think a lot of people have decided they want to to get on workflow, but they don't do the other things that are that are necessary. You've got to understand that workflow is a different concept and you really need to utilize testing and testability to get the full picture because visually you can see your flow, but you really need testing to to uh to show that your logic is actually correct in your code activities. So if we could nail down the sort of um, conditions under which you should be looking at, you know, looking at Windows Workflow, it's you have a complex process that needs to be um, solved. You know, you have a lot of rules and or it's going to change on a regular basis. I mean, that's one of the big benefits of Workflow, isn't it? That when rules change, you just move the orders around and sw- switch, switch, swap, swap, and uh, all of a sudden your system is working in a new way. Absolutely. It makes it extremely easy to to swap in new things, to try uh, different techniques. So we've made a lot of use of uh, feature flags for rolling out new features and um, um, having features that we can roll out to production that aren't quite ready yet. So... It, it, because the workflows are so compartmentalized and single focus, it allows us to quickly and easily swap those out. Um, we can also make pretty major changes very easily. So we might be in a meeting where we decide we want this customer service rep to get an email when this happens. And so now we drag an if condition code activity. We connect up the lines and drop an email activity and boom, we've just fulfilled that requirement and we can see very easily that that requirement's been fulfilled. Yeah, I think that providing the visualization that those new requirements are being dealt with, that's really interesting about this. Yes. You know, that's an interesting example of, okay, well, I want email to be sent here and here. Like, this sort of leads me down this path of reusability. How easy is it actually to reuse these work items that you build? So they're actually extremely easy to reuse, and Microsoft's actually given us a uh, a, a project type called a uh, shared activity library. So you might have uh, a library like we do at EBSCO, which has a lot of our um, business-specific activities where it may be sending an email. We have our own system for handling email and making sure that customer emails don't go out to, uh, you know, in development, things like that. So we've written them once and then we can reuse them across projects. And then each individual project can create activities that will be reused multiple times throughout them. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to retrofit the .NET Rocks fan club sign-up process into the Windows Workflow Designer. And whoa, that looks like a giant game of pickup sticks. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's time to give away a Music to Code by Complete audio collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Let me tell you about Music to Code by. It's a set of 25-minute Pomodoro-sized, quiet and groovy instrumentals scientifically designed to promote focus. It will get you into a state of flow and keep you there. 
.NET Rocks fans all over the world are being more productive with music to code by. See what all the fuss is about. Check out mtcb.pwop.com. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Johan Mahler from Auckland, New Zealand. Congratulations. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for Johan. And uh, he won that collection. That's 10. 10. Count them 10 tracks. Because you've been busy. I've been busy. And the latest one, let me tell you something about the latest one, number 10, which is, uh, what's the color again? Indigo. Indigo. That's right. We have now three shades of blue, including Azure. <laughs> uh, indigo is more purple anyway. But anyway, um, this one I sort of pushed the groove into the background a little bit more mm-hmm. and made the, you know, brought up the bass. So it's just very ambient and there's not a lot happening there. And people seem to have really responded positively to this one, even more than the other ones. So check it out. Awesome, dude. mtcv.pwop.com. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. It really isn't all that complicated, but I needed a joke. Uh, we, have, <laughs> we have thousands of members all over the world. And every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree. Shoot, you just missed it. Yep. To one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but you got to sign up to win. And also we like to ask our guest, Blake, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, sir, what would you buy? Well, I'm really big into uh, videography. And one mm-hmm. of the things I've, I've really been wanting is a high-end drone that can carry a DSLR for, for doing some really neat videography shots. Yeah. Um, have it where you can program the GPS and, and fly in a pattern. Uh, every time I see one, I just think that's so cool. And I think that's what I would probably buy. And that'll eat five grand, no problem. problem. (laughs) Oh, yes. I was already pricing them out uh, earlier just to make sure that I could actually fit under the $5,000 budget. And make sure you put a parachute on it because people are are prone to shoot at them. Oh, yes. Especially (laughs) in America, anyway. Especially in Alabama. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Get off my lawn. (laughs) Were were, were we in Belfast? We saw that massive, like octocopter carrying a, a big DSLR. It was about a meter and a half, you know. And that was it was a big machine. It was huge. Wow. And uh, yeah, we looked up in the sky and thought it was so far away, but it was only like I don't know, hundred feet up. Yeah, but they were doing. It was uh, oh, it was the Titanic Museum. Titanic Museum. Yeah. Yeah, and so they were doing aerials of this with this. It was and it was windy that day, it was like crazy. really windy, and it was holding absolutely still in the sky. Yeah. Yeah, it was an amazing machine. And I bet you substantially more than five grand. <laughs> yep. <laughs> What's the one that's very popular right now? Was it the Phantom? Phantom. Yeah, they they uh, they keep coming out with new versions of it. The first one, the Phantom, came out. You could actually see the blades of the copter in the camera. And I thought, oh, that's kind of sucky. But then they lowered the gimbal. And so it, it takes just superb pictures now. Yeah, and they keep, keep making new models, too. I think the Phantom 3 is sort of the leading-edge version of it, and that's sort of getting into the DSLR class, because DSLRs are heavy. Right. You know, it, it's uh, it's not a small thing to get something strong enough to, to lift vehicle a vehicle to lift a camera quite that heavy. But, yep, it's as much as you want to spend. <laughs> but, you know, the other camera, the GoPro seems like an ideal candidate yeah. for that kind of work, yeah. too. 
Yeah, they've really upped the quality on those GoPros. Uh, I have one that I use for uh, some shots, and I'm always amazed at, at what comes out. Yeah, in, in the the Pro Four, like, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary camera and light. Which I guess you know, it's what, if you're going to wear it on your head, it needs to be light. Can can we go through what the typical process for you is when uh, approaching a project with workflow? Where does it start? So normally it starts, you know, at the decision of, uh, you know, looking at the requirements. Does it make sense to use a workflow? Uh, because I do want to, I do want to stress that workflow is not going to fit every project. And yeah. in some cases it might make it more complex, but hmm. um, what we found is, especially in a large enterprise, most projects seem to fit into a workflow. Um, so normally we'll start off with, uh, taking a new workflow and just start modeling out using placeholder activities exactly what we want it to do. So on the project that we're working on right now, we have 12 different modules where the the logic is very similar, but it's doing different things. And so the way we actually approached it is we have started an experiment where we're doing something called squad programming, where we literally got the entire development team in a room put up the uh, the code on a projector and started mapping out the first one and getting the first one exactly the way we wanted it, kind of determined naming conventions and, and got all the testing done. And then we sent everyone off to go do the next ones. So we ended up with, with a lot of consistency. Uh, because that's, that's the, one of the other things that you have to be, you have to make sure that everyone on your team has bought into this process. And thankfully, all of my team has. Uh, because you can have one person who decides they want to write 700 line code activities instead of modeling right. their logic in a workflow. Yeah. Um, so once we start kind of having this base, you know, we'll put these in front of the business and say, Hey, this is what we're building. Does this look right to you? And we'll work, walk through each of these workflows and think it through mentally. Does it make sense? And then we go off and really do the, the hardcore work of actually building it. And you mentioned the these shared activity libraries. I've also seen here the base activity libraries. Yes. Yeah, so all uh, code activities can inherit from the base activity. And so we've done a lot of things with our activities, like we have standardized how we call our services so that mm. we're always cleaning up and disposing of objects when they're not needed, things like that. Mm. And um, done some validation to make sure that if... Um, Someone doesn't wire up a code activity quite right. We'll, we'll throw some, uh, errors, things like that. Nice. Um, that, that's one of the things where the designer is really great in some aspects and it's always 99% there on a lot of others. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of things I would love to see in the that's designer. That, 1%. I know. And that's why I really hope someone from the, uh, workflow team is listening to me and I will buy them a beer at build this year if they will, <laughs> uh, fix a couple of things for me, uh, mm, in the designer. Sure. I would love to be able to double click on a code activity and have it take me to the code in the designer. Uh, Ooh, that's yeah, probably my nice. biggest wish list. <laughs> it also sounds like the, so the, the, these base libraries then also a great place to capture logging, to capture security requirements. Like you, you were talking about how you call services. I presume that also is, this is where we use SSL. This is the authentication strategy we're using, that kind of thing. That's exactly right. So we have uh, logging implemented in our base activity. We also use that to gather performance metrics. Uh, to make sure that we're not implementing things that are going to cause performance issues. Nice. Um, and it's funny because one of the big complaints in Workflow 3 was that from a performance standpoint, it was just slow. 
Right. And so the project I'm working on right now, you know, we're having to call a service, you know, half a million times and we need it to be very responsive. And we were just getting some, some very slow performance. And, you know, we had one of those moments where we're like, Oh no, have we made a bad decision? Is workflow slowing us down? So we started putting our metrics on it. And the first results we got is it was showing that our workflow was taking zero milliseconds. Hmm. And so we thought something's wrong. So we increased our precision. Exactly. We were increased mm. our precision and realized that we were running through the bulk of the application, which is all workflow logic, and it was less than a millisecond. All of our performance wow. problems were calling external services. Aha. Ah. Nice. Yeah. Well, and it, I mean, it's got to be a natural byproduct of this is you get that instrumentation as well. So you know what the cost of the workflow itself is. Exactly. It's much easier to add this type of instrumentation to the base class of a code activity than to try to go to every method and make sure that everyone is always putting this instrumentation in there. So with literally four or five lines of code, we were able to add instrumentation to every activity on our uh, solution. Uh, state machine workflows? So state machine work- workflows were brought back, I believe, in .NET 4.5. Um, mm-hmm. We are not really using them. Uh, there, Those were kind of what everyone were doing in three, and it seems like those have kind of fallen a little off. One of the new uh, types of workflows that was introduced in, in Workflow 4 is the flowchart workflow, which is where we spend most of our time. And just like the name sounds, it's it's a flowchart, and it's just very easy to uh, to build workflows off of it. Well, and it's the way most of us are building work in these business apps anyway, right? You do this and you do this, given these conditions go over here, these conditions go over there. I mean, it is a workflow. Exactly. Uh, it just, it really fits well into the processes that we've been trying to model, uh, into code. And I think it's kind of funny that, uh, as developers, oftentimes we feel much more comfortable taking these, uh, these process, these workflow type processes and making them into code. And we don't feel comfortable taking these workflow processes and making them into workflows. Right. Which is not good. Is there, you know, I joked about sort of retrofitting some existing code into a workflow. Is there anything that does that or is that just kind of asking for trouble? There, there's really not. And, and really you wouldn't want to, um, you want to make decisions, uh, that are based on the workflow mindset. But one of the things you can do is a workflow can be invoked by any, any code. Sure. So you can decide that a particular part of your application makes a lot of sense to move to workflow and you can move just those components into a workflow and not have to move your entire application wholesale. So you don't have to bite, you know, bite off a full chunk. You can just, uh, take these small pieces and start converting your application over time. Uh, this might seem like a ridiculous question, but you know, I'm sure somebody out there is, is thinking it. Um, is workflow working mostly in a sort of a a desktop or a server based a service based thing or is it something that can integrate with a a web request cuz you know you typically think of a web request whatever it, whatever technology you're using is something that just gets some data and then spits something back out uh is a workflow essentially a windows service that kicks off in the background and and does a whole bunch of processing or does it is it does it make sense at all to integrate with with uh, web-based services? 
So we're actually using it in a service right now where we have a service that needs to be extremely performant and returned responses uh, very quickly. And we also have another uh, workflow that is driven off of uh, MSMQ where we drop messages on it and let it process at its own pace. And then we have another one that uh, uses the long-running workflow feature uh, built in that we really haven't talked about. But you can also use them in your your plain WinForm or WPF applications. Uh, it's just extremely versatile. Give us a give me an example of where you would use this in a web request because you know I, when I think of a web request, whatever technology you're using, whether it's ASP.NET, MVC, or even you know. You you get a request, you do something, and then you send back a response. How does how does workflow fit into that? So you might have uh, an add to cart scenario on a website where you want to have the user click the button, send off a request to a service that goes through and verifies that uh, you have the item in inventory that. Uh, certain validation has been met, two or three, you know, different things where you might have a workflow that wants to go through and check all of these things, create a response object and pass it back up. Um, it just all depends on what you're doing. We, Got we it. have some, we have some business processes that are pretty complex, uh, in doing calculations that we need to return back up to a UI and it works, uh, phenomenally for that. So the workflow is using some databases, you know, SQL server or something for the state, basically. Yes. So Microsoft has a tool called App Fabric, uh, which gives us monitoring, logging, and uh, persistence of workflows. So one of the benefits, uh, we have some workflows that are long running, as in six six months to a year. Yeah. Um, and so one of the benefits is with workflow and, and App Fabric is when these workflows aren't doing anything actively, they will persist themselves into the App Fabric store and only come back when they're necessary. So we can hook in listening for certain uh, workflow will listen to a request for a particular correlation ID for a workflow automatically reinitialize it and start processing again. So the benefit here is you can really cut down on your infrastructure cost because even though you might be doing a whole lot of processing, you don't have to to be there doing that all the time. So you can spread that load out um, over time when you're when you're not as busy right. or you can process them uh, later and it's good from a disaster recovery standpoint because you don't have to uh, run these on the same box so you may have a workflow that started on one machine persists itself and then spins up on another machine here's another kind of off the wall question what's the craziest gotcha that people are going to run into when using workflow <laughs> well so so one of them I do want to get out there is uh, we found a bug that's been a long-standing bug uh, that cost us several days is if you have a database project in your solution, your custom code activities won't show in the toolbox. And what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this was one that we, we ended up finding through trial and error. We were able to get around it. So we had to break that out. But it's a long-standing bug, and there's a uh, connect ticket on it, but it hasn't yet been fixed. And uh it nearly caused us to quit using workflow when we first wow. uh, started implementing it. Uh, so well, I definitely this just seems so to bizarre to have a, you have a database project. What's the big deal? Why has that got anything to do with anything? Exactly. And I still haven't seen a good explanation of why it is, but we can we can readily reproduce it on anybody's machine with multiple different solutions. Interesting. Uh, but I think, like I said, the other the other big one is you you have to go into it with the mindset of I'm building workflows. And you really need to to 
come to grips with you need to have good testing practices because if you don't try if you don't do all of these things you're not you're you're going to fall into the traps that end up um causing problems and make you think that workflow is the problem yep yeah, it's easy to blame workflow for all of this. Hey, and I just want to do a little callback there because you mentioned App Fabric. You're not talking about Azure App Fabric, right? This is Windows Server App Fabric. Uh, yes, this is Windows Server App Fabric. All right. Well, and it's and I think they're all going to be consolidated as one product. And we keep hearing bits and pieces of that, but yeah, it's. I think it's an interesting problem we have right now. They're reusing names for different things, and it gets people confused. Exactly. Right? Yeah, that's that's a term that has at least three definitions now. At least. Yeah. So what's next for you? What's on your, what's in your inbox? Well, um, I, I'm do a lot of, uh, been doing some prototyping work with some Xamarin tools, uh, in mobile space. Nice. Um, really wanting to get into that. I'm just in love with Xamarin right now. Um, it has made things a whole lot easier. Um, you know, continuing to, uh, to try and solve new problems at work. I, I have an absolutely fantastic team and, we just have such a great culture at EBSCO. It, um, it's just been making making my life uh, a joy to go go to work every day. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm I'm always staying busy. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot for spending this hour with us. It's been great talking to you. Thank you so much. I'm I'm very happy to uh, be on the show. This is a huge step for me. Uh, .NET Rocks was the very first podcast I ever subscribed to. So this is like oh. a, a a dream come true. That's awesome. Well, thanks very much for listening. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got transmitter bands by the FCC. Yes, I'm a toy boy. Life is hard.